0: Section twenty nine of the Letters of Mark Twain Complete. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. The Letters of Mark Twain Complete by Mark Twain. Volume four, Chapter twenty seven. Miscellaneous Letters of eighteen eighty seven. LITERARY ARTICLES PEACEFUL DAYS AT THE FARM FAVOURITE READING APOLOGY TO MRS. CLEVELAND, etc. We have seen in the preceding chapter how unknown aspirants in one field or another were always seeking to benefit by Mark Twain's reputation. Once he remarked, "'The symbol of the human race ought to be an axe. Every human being has one concealed about him.' somewhere. He declared, when a stranger called on him, or wrote to him, in nine cases out of ten he could distinguish the gleam of the axe almost immediately. The following letter is closely related to those of the foregoing chapter, only that this one was mailed not once, but many times, in some form adapted to the specific applicant. It does not matter to whom it was originally written, the name would not be recognized to mrs t concerning unearned credentials etc hartford 1887 my dear madam it is an idea which many people have had but it is of no value i have seen it tried out many and many a time i have seen a lady lecturer urged and urged upon the public in a lavishly complimentary document signed by longfellow whittier holmes and some others of supreme celebrity but there was nothing in her and she failed if there had been any great merit in her she never would have needed those men's help and at her rather mature age would never have consented to ask for it there is an unwritten law about human successes and your sister must bow to that law she must submit to its requirements In brief, this law is 1. No occupation without an apprenticeship 2. No pay to the apprentice This law stands right in the way of the subaltern who wants to be a general before he has smelt powder. And it stands, and should stand, in everybody's way who applies for pay or position before he has served his apprenticeship and proved himself your sister's course is perfectly plain let her enclose this letter to major j b pond and offer to lecture a year for ten dollars a week and her expenses the contract to be annullable by him at any time after a month's notice but not annullable by her at all the second year he to have her services if he wants them at a trifle under the best price offered her by anybody else. She can learn her trade in those two years and then be entitled to remuneration, but she cannot learn it in any less time than that, unless she is a human miracle. Try it, and do not be afraid. It is the fair and right thing. If she wins, she will win squarely and righteously, and never have to blush. TRULY YOURS, S. L. CLEMENS Howells wrote in February, offering to get a publisher to take the library of humor off Mark Twain's hands. Howells had been paid $2,600 for the work on it, and his conscience hurt him when he reflected that the book might never be used. In this letter he also refers to one of the disastrous inventions in which Clemens had invested a method of casting brass dies for stamping book covers and wallpaper howells's purpose was to introduce something of the matter into his next story mark twain's reply gives us a light on this particular invention hartford february 15, eighty-seven. dear howells i was in new york five days ago and webster mentioned the library and propose to publish it a year or a year and a half hence. I have written him your proposition today. The library is part of the property of the CLW and Company firm. I don't remember what that technical phrase was, but I think you will find it in any cyclopedia under the head of brass. The thing I best remember is that the self-styled inventor had a very ingenious way of keeping me from seeing him apply his invention. The first appointment was spoiled by his burning down the man's shop in which it was to be done the night before. The second was spoiled by his burning down his own shop the night before. He unquestionably did both of these things. He really had no invention. The whole project was a blackmailing swindle and cost me several thousand dollars the slip you sent me from the may study has delighted mrs clemens and me to the marrow to think that thing might be possible to many but to be brave enough to say it is possible to you only i certainly believe the longer i live the clearer i perceive how unmatchable how unapproachable a compliment one pays when he says of a man he has the courage to utter his convictions. Haven't you had reviewers talk Alps to you and then print Potato Hills? I haven't as good an opinion of my work as you hold of it, but I've always done what I could to secure and enlarge my good opinion of it. I've always said to myself, everybody reads it and that's something. It surely isn't pernicious or the most acceptable people would get pretty tired of it. And when a critic said by implication that it wasn't high and fine, through the remark, high and fine literature is wine, I retorted confidentially to myself, yes, high and fine literature is wine, and mine is only water, but everybody likes water. You didn't tell me to return that proof slip, so I have pasted it, into my private scrapbook, none will see it there with a thousand thanks. Yours ever mark. Our next letter is an unmailed answer, but it does not belong with the others having been withheld for reasons of quite a different sort. Jeannette Gilder, then of the critic, was one of Mark Twain's valued friends in the comment which he made when it was shown to him twenty-two years later he tells us why he thinks this letter was not sent the name rest and be thankful was the official title given to the summer place at elmira but it was more often known as quarry to Jeanette gilder not mailed hartford may eighty seven my dear miss gilder we shall spend the summer at the same old place the remote farm called rest and be thankful on top of the hills three miles from elmira new york your other question is harder to answer it is my habit to keep four or five books in process of erection all the time and every summer add a few courses of bricks to two or three of them but i cannot forecast which of the two or three it is going to be it takes seven years to complete a book by this method but still it is a good method. Gives the public a rest. I have been accused of rushing into print, prematurely, moved thereto by greediness for money. But in truth, I have never done that. Do you care for trifles of information? Well then, Tom Sawyer and the Prince and the Pauper were each on the stocks two or three years, and old times on the Mississippi eight one of my unfinished books has been on the stock sixteen years another seventeen this latter book could have been finished in a day at any time during the past five years but as in the first of these two narratives all the action takes place in noah's ark and as in the other the action takes place in heaven there seemed to be no hurry and so i have not hurried Tales of stirring adventure in those localities do not need to be rushed to publication lest they get stale by waiting. In 21 years, with all my time at my free disposal, I have written and completed only 11 books, whereas with half the labor that a journalist does, I could have written 60 in that time. I do not greatly mind being accused of a proclivity for rushing into print, but at the same time, I don't believe that the charge is really well-founded. Suppose I did write 11 books. Have you nothing to be grateful for? Go to. Remember the 49 which I didn't write. Truly yours, S.L. Clemens. Notes added 22 years later. Stormfield, April thirtieth, nineteen 1909. It seems the letter was not sent. I probably feared she might print it, and I couldn't find a way to say so without running the risk of hurting her. No one would hurt Jeanette Gilda purposely, and no one would want to run the risk of doing it unintentionally. She is my neighbor, six miles away now, and I must ask her about this ancient letter." i note with pride and pleasure that i told no untruths in my unsent answer i still have the habit of keeping unfinished books lying around years and years waiting i have four or five novels on hand at present in a half-finished condition and it is more than three years since i have looked at any of them i have no intention of finishing them I could complete all of them in less than a year if the impulse should come powerfully upon me. Long, long ago, money necessity furnished that impulse once, following the equator, but mere desire for money has never furnished it, so far as I remember. Not even money necessity was able to overcome me on a couple of occasions when perhaps I ought to have allowed it to succeed. While I was bankrupt and in debt, two offers were made me for weekly literary contributions to continue during a year, and they would have made a debtless man of me, but I declined them, with my wife's full approval, for I had known of no instance where a man had pumped himself out once a week and failed to run emptying's before the year was finished. As to that Noah's Ark book, I began it in Edinburgh in 1873 footnote this is not quite correct the noah's ark book was begun in buffalo in 1870 end of footnote i don't know where the manuscript is now it was a diary which professed to be the work of shim but wasn't i began it again several months ago but only for recreation. I hadn't any intention of carrying it to a finish or even to the end of the first chapter, in fact. As to the book whose action takes place in heaven, that was a small thing. Captain Stormfield's visit to heaven. It lay in my pigeonholes 40 years. Then I took it out and printed it in Harper's Monthly last year, S.L.C., IN THE NEXT LETTER WE GET A PRETTY AND PEACEFUL PICTURE OF REST AND BE THANKFUL. THESE WERE MARK Twain's BALMY DAYS. THE FINANCIAL DRAIN OF THE TYPE-MACHINE WAS HEAVY, BUT NOT YET EXHAUSTING, AND THE PROSPECT OF VAST RETURNS FROM IT SEEMED TO GROW BRIGHTER EACH DAY. HIS PUBLISHING BUSINESS, THOUGH LESS PROFITABLE, WAS STILL PROSPEROUS. HIS FAMILY LIFE WAS IDEAL. HOW GRATEFULLY, THEN, HE COULD ENTER INTO THE PEACE OF THAT PERFECT DAY to mrs orion clemens in keokuk iowa on the hill near elmira july 10 87 dear molly this is a superb sunday for weather very cloudy and the thermometer as low as 65 the city in the valley is purple with shade as seen from up here at the study The Cranes are reading and loafing in the canvas-cutting summer-house fifty yards away on a higher, the highest point. The Cats are loafing over at Ellerslie, which is the children's estate, and dwelling-house in their own private grounds, by deed from Susie Crane, a hundred yards from the study, amongst the clover and young oaks and willows. Livy is down at the house but i shall now go and bring her up to the cranes to help us occupy the lounges and hammocks whence a great panorama of distant hill and valley and city is seeable the children have gone on a lark through the neighboring hills and woods it is a perfect day indeed with love to you all sam two days after this letter was written we get a hint of what was the beginning of business trouble that is to say, of the failing health of Charles L. Webster. Webster was ambitious, nervous, and not robust. He had overworked, and was paying the penalty. His trouble was neurasthenia, and he was presently obliged to retire altogether from the business. The Sam and Mary mentioned were Samuel Moffat and his wife. To Mrs. Pamela Moffat in Fredonia, New York elmira july twelfth, 87 my dear sister i had no idea that charlie's case was so serious i knew it was bad and persistent but i was not aware of the full size of the matter i have just been writing to a friend in hartford who treated what i imagine was a similar case surgically last fall and produced a permanent cure if this is a like case charlie must go to him if relief fails there he must take the required rest whether the business can stand it or not it is most pleasant to hear such prosperous accounts of sam and mary i do not see how sam could well be more advantageously fixed he can grow up with that paper and achieve a successful life it is not all holiday here with susie and clara this time They have to put in some little time every day on their studies. Jean thinks she is studying too, but I don't know what it is unless it is the horses. She spends the day under their heels in the stables, and that is but a continuation of her Hartford system of culture. With love from us all, to you all, affectionately, Sam. Mark Twain had a few books that he read regularly every year or two. Among these were Pepys' Diary, Suetonius's Lives of the Twelve Caesars, and Thomas Carlyle's French Revolution. He had a passion for history, biography, and personal memoirs of any sort. In his early life he had cared very little for poetry, but along in the middle eighties he somehow acquired a taste for browning, and became absorbed in it. A browning club assembled as often as once a week at the Clemens' home in Hartford, to listen to his readings of the master he was an impressive reader and he carefully prepared himself for these occasions indicating by graduated underscorings the exact values he wished to give to words and phrases those were memorable gatherings and they must have continued through at least two winters it is one of the puzzling phases of mark twain's character that notwithstanding his passion for direct and lucid expression he should have found pleasure in the poems of Robert Browning. To W. D. Howells in Boston, Elmira, August 22, 87. My dear Howells, how stunning are the changes which age makes in a man while he sleeps. When I finished Carlyle's French Revolution in 1871, I was a Girardine. Every time I've read it since, i have read it differently being influenced and changed little by little by life and environment and taine and saint simon and now i lay the book down once more and recognize that i am a sans culotte and not a pale characterless sans culotte but a marat Carlyle teaches no such gospel so the change is in me in my vision of the evidences People pretend that the Bible means the same to them at 50 that it did at all former milestones in their journey. I wonder how they can lie so. It comes of practice, no doubt. They would not say that of Dickens' or Scott's books. Nothing remains the same. When a man goes back to look at the house of his childhood, it is always shrunk. There is no instance of such a house being as big as the picture in memory and imagination called for. Shrunk how? Why, to its correct dimensions. The house hasn't altered. This is the first time it has been in focus. Well, that's loss. To have house and Bible shrink so, under the disillusion and corrected anger, is loss, for a moment but there are compensations. You tilt the tube skyward and bring planets and comets and corona flames a hundred and fifty thousand miles high into the field, which I see you have done and found Tolstoy. I haven't got him in focus yet, but I've got Browning. Yours ever, Mark. Mention has been made already of Mark Twain's tendency to absent-mindedness, he was always forgetting engagements or getting them wrong. Once he hurried to an afternoon party, and finding the mistress of the house alone, sat down and talked to her comfortably for an hour or two, not remembering his errand at all. It was only when he reached home that he learned that the party had taken place the week before. It was always dangerous for him to make engagements, and he never seemed to profit by sorrowful experience. We, however, may profit now by one of his amusing apologies. To Mrs. Grover Cleveland in Washington Hartford, November sixth, 1887 My dear madam, I do not know how it is in the White House, but in this house of ours, whenever the minor half of the administration tries to run itself without the help of the major half, it gets aground last night when i was offered the opportunity to assist you in the throwing open the warner brothers superb benefaction in bridgeport to those fortunate women i naturally appreciated the honor done me and promptly seized my chance i had an engagement but the circumstances washed it out of my mind if i had only laid the matter before the major half of the administration on the spot there would have been no blunder but I never thought of that. So, when I did lay it before her, later, I realized once more that it will not do for the literary fraction of a combination to try to manage affairs which properly belong in the office of the business bulk of it. I suppose the President often acts just like that, goes and makes an impossible promise, and you never find out until it is next to impossible to break it up and set things straight again well that is just our way exactly one half of the administration always busy getting the family into trouble and the other half busy getting it out again and so we do seem to be all pretty much alike after all the fact is i had forgotten that we would have a dinner party on that bridgeport date i thought it was the next day which is a good deal of an improvement for me because i am more used to being behind a day or two than ahead but that is just the difference between one end of this kind of an administration and the other end of it as you have noticed yourself the other end does not forget these things just so with a funeral if it is the man's funeral he is most always there of course but that is no credit to him-he wouldn't be there if you depended on him to remember about it. Whereas if on the other hand-but I seem to have got off from my line of argument somehow. Never mind about the funeral. Of course, I am not meaning to say anything against funerals-that is, as occasions, mere occasions, for as diversions I don't think they amount to much. But as I was saying, If you are not busy, I will look back and see what it was I was saying. I don't seem to find the place. But, anyway, she was as sorry as ever anybody could be that I could not go to Bridgeport. But there was no help for it. And I, I have been not only sorry, but very sincerely ashamed of having made an engagement to go without first making sure that I could keep it and i do not know how to apologize enough for my heedless breach of good manners with the sincerest respect s l clemens samuel clemens was one of the very few authors to copyright a book in england before the enactment of the international copyright law as early as eighteen seventy two he copyrighted roughing it in england and piratical publishers there respected his rights Finally, in 1887, the Inland Revenue Office assessed him with income tax, which he very willingly paid, instructing his London publishers, Chateau and Windus, to pay on the full amount he had received from them. But when the receipt for his taxes came, it was nearly a yard square with due postage of considerable amount. Then he wrote, "'To Mr. Chatto of Chateau and Windus in London.' hartford december 5 87 my dear chateau look here i don't mind paying the tax but don't you let the inland revenue office send me any more receipts for it for the postage is something perfectly demoralizing if they feel obliged to print a receipt on a horse blanket why don't they hire a ship and send it over at their own expense wasn't it good that they caught me out with an old book instead of a new one the tax on a new book would bankrupt a body it was my purpose to go to england next may and stay the rest of the year but i found that tax office out just in time my new book would issue in march and they would tax the sale in both countries come we must get up a compromise somehow You go and work in on the good side of those revenue people, and get them to take the profits and give me the tax. Then I will come over and we will divide the swag and have a good time. I wish you to thank Mr. Christmas for me, but we won't resist. The country that allows me copyright has a right to tax me. Sincerely yours, S.L. Clemens another english tax assessment came that year based on the report that it was understood that he was going to become an english resident and had leased buckingham hall norwich for a year clemens wrote his publishers i will explain that all that about buckingham hall was an english newspaper's mistake i was not in england and if i had been i wouldn't have been at buckingham hall anyway but at buckingham palace or i would have endeavored to find out the reason why clemens made literature out of this tax experience he wrote an open letter to her majesty queen victoria such a letter has no place in this collection it was published in the drawer of harper's magazine december eighteen eighty seven and is now included in the uniform edition of his works under the title of a petition to the Queen of England. From the following letter, written at the end of the year, we gather that the typesetter costs were beginning to make a difference in the Clemens economies. To Mrs. Moffat in Fredonia, Hartford, December eighteen, eighty-seven, dear Pamela. Will you take this $15 and buy some candy or some other trifle for yourself and Sam and his wife to remember that we remember you by? If we weren't a little crowded this year by the typesetter, I'd send a check large enough to buy a family Bible or some other useful thing like that. However, we go on and on. But the typesetter goes on forever. At $3,000 a month, which is much more satisfactory than was the case the first 17 months when the bill only averaged $2,000 and promised to take a 1,000 years. We'll be through now in three or four months, I reckon, and then the strain will let up and we can breathe freely once more, whether success ensues or failure. Even with a top set on hand, we ought not to be in the least scrimped but it would take a long letter to explain why and who is to blame. All the family send love to all of you and best Christmas wishes for your prosperity. Affectionately, Sam. End of section twenty nine. Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista.